Welcome to Five and On Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. With me again this week, Ted. Yes, Ted Acraft. Ted Acraft. Uh, I should just announce our topic right uh, right up front. Uh, this week, we're discussing... Uh, <laughs> it's our pet... It's, one, it's some of our pet to- topics. Uh, it's funny because you were very, at first, like, oh, are we going to have enough to talk about? Or are we going to... It's me talking about Star Wars and you talking about Jack Kirby. Well, yes. I mean, you you have witnessed. I have done a, uh, I have created a, a panel talk, or, or what, what did you call well, it? before we before we go into the actual topic, let's get real briefly. What what did you watch this week? Because um, I think you we're not entirely in the same boat. You have been seeing some movies at the theater, but uh, the, I went and finally saw my second theatrical movie of tw- of uh, post pandemic twenty twenty because uh, our town got mank finally, and I know you saw it too. Yes, I did. What'd you think? Oh boy, that's a can oh. of worms. Uh, I uh, well, f- first of all, it's one of those films. My expectations are way too high. Number one, sure. Number two, you, I I talked to you before this. You you seemed prepared for it. Not I was be. trying to prepare myself because the reviews. I mean, even exactly. even you, the two page reviews, right? a two page time review. Uh, uh, by what's her name, Stephanie? I can't. Stephanie Zacharick. Right. Uh, she even seemed to pull back a little bit even though they literally have two pages to write about it and that's the thing there's a lot to be said about this movie it's a lot to digest uh, I don't I don't at this point right now this very hour this day I, I don't love the film but I like the film uh, I think it's too smart for its own good in some ways I came away very concretely having to remind myself that it's a solid entertaining movie I think I I had heard, uh, I'd seen some bad reviews, and in the back of my head, my hope was stupidly and perversely hoping that this is a David Fincher movie that people didn't get, like people didn't get Zodiac when it first came out, and unfortunately, that was not the case, and one thing just on a personal level I'm really proud of is that we did our episode about Pauline Kael's Raising Cain essay, and... I hope people go back to check it out, not just because uh, it, we talked about the same topic that the movie is based on, but I think we did a good job because there's a lot of instances of things we talked about that the movie just bought the K- the Pauline Kael essay hook, line, and sinker, and it's the movie's kind of full of shit on it. And the other problem I have, like basic problem I have with the movie is a general one of um, perfectionist directors, they're, they're not all Kubrick. And when you see a perfectionist director make a big deal, I kept watching uh, Mankin wondering, it took 100 tanks, takes to get this for a scene that's, for a movie that's, I don't want to say mediocre, because it's, it's, it's very entertaining, but it, it just seems like uh, the technique that they dedicate themselves to, like the, 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 it has the really interesting sound design of it trying to m- mimic the feeling of going to a theater, which I hope, I mean, I hope when it comes out on Netflix, that, that translates to like your sixth channel, but 
For the most part, it just seems like they're putting everything in the front channel with a little bit of echo. And the movies in CinemaScope, which was not popularized, even if it was available at the time, was, it was not a, Well, as a stranger, uh, uh, the, the manager at the theater was actually wrestling with what ratio he should show the thing in. Really? Yeah. Because it was often on he, uh, when I saw it. He too. showed it. Uh, we actually, before the movie started, he actually read it two different aspect ratios for me. Help me try to help me decide what you think is better. Because what, yeah. what I saw was letterboxed. Yeah, it was. Uh, that's what we opted for. But uh, I mean, they're both. Uh, they both had black uh, around it. Um, but it was a. It was. He, he said it was a strange ratio for him to play with. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I like the end of the day. I think <clears throat> we, you've heard the stories that this was um, Fincher's directing a script by his, his father. father yeah. His father writing it. His yeah. father was a journalist, and I think that has a lot. I think that's. Um, uh, a big uh, thing uh, that ha- enlightens it or hampers it or however you want to say it, uh, that I think uh, uh, you have to keep that in mind. And the, and the movie's clever, too, which is odd. But it's very clever. I think, I think it's almost too smart for it's good. I'm, I would, I would, I'm really curious to see if anybody, a general moviegoer, who's not in the cult of Orson Welles or the cult of Pauline Kael or the cult or any of those cults, just a you know oh I want to oh, a movie about Hollywood with Gary Oldman I want to watch it I would wonder I'm I'm curious to see what their reaction is going to be because you know we're you and I are sitting there you know and we know all these stories forty thousand things are going through sometimes. our head you know uh, trying oh is that no is this that that you know and um, well one basic thing that really did get on my nerves is uh, that it was just like it's a good idea not executed fully through is most every scene open and closed very similar to the way Citizen Kane does where they would do fade outs but manually on set to where the set's lights would come down before the thing edited down and then they'd highlight with one piece of light uh, in the set itself. In Citizen Kane, they one, it's not a technique they use that often and when they do, it's a transition into the next scene often. Like the very famously, the movie opens with a uh, um, uh, Xanadu, you, you see the same window in the exact same spot in the frame at the very beginning. It's it, in this version in Mank, it's just very episodic because every scene, especially at the end when they start intercutting sequences, flashback sequences on purpose, each scene fades in and out very episodically. And the type, the type, the, the typeface comes about. Uh, yeah, the the, the, uh, like script. the the screen the screenplay slug line. Yeah, uh, it's I don't know. It's a real curiosity. I it's uh, it's not yeah, it's not a zodiac. I bet, I bet, but I think it's a it's like, I think it's a unique novelty of film. Yeah, I, I think it's it, it's not a zodiac, but it's also and I've got I have no one to agree with me on this. It's also not Benjamin Button. It is not a <laughs> a distinctly bad David Venture movie. Is Benjamin Button the? the uh, I can't stand Benjamin <laughs> Button. <laughs> you know what we? Uh, it is a very beautiful movie, but it is a it is a ridiculous dramatic movie. This just hit me now. Talking discussing this, uh, I I almost would want to see a follow up movie to make, and it shows the Orson Welles point of view, the matchup, sure. the back and forth. Because you, you know I uh, I was also judging some of the in, in doing the instance where I judged some of the interviews where. Um, you know, we, we did this whole episode on uh, Pauline Kael's essay, which is Search the Authorial Ship, and we go into details of who believes what, what research says what, and the conclusions by most people that have done the research is that it was a co-written screenplay. And Fincher made some glib comment about how Orson Welles, you know, never wrote a movie as good as Sisson Kane, so that's why Herman J. Mankiewicz wrote it, which is just... <laughs> Herman J. Mankiewicz didn't write as good a movie as Citizen Kane. His next movie was Pride of the Yankees. Yeah, okay, that, that makes me think of our, our upcoming subject in Stan Lee. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, what do you th- did you think? Uh, uh, is the American 
His is is his original Manx draft out there to be yeah, read? Yeah, I have it actually. Without without it being, uh, uh, I didn't read all of it. Uh, I've read uh, big chunks of it. It's just, it's, it's not about. It's not your traditional first draft in that it's um, unshaped and fat. It's just longer and fat, but it's a long first draft. And and as I pointed out in the episode, twofold one. Half of good writing is what you choose to edit, and then you have sequences like in Citizen Kane, the um, the uh, marriage uh, breakfast se- uh, sequence, where you get the t- where you go back and forth between the couple arguing over a year, and that is an amazing epic or a sense of good elliptical editing, like that that it's I mean that's something that comes in when you edit down a longer version of it that and if you want to say Mankiewicz wrote the raw material and build it up and someone broke it down. I don't think the research backs you up on it, but fine. That's that's that still shows you just don't understand what writing is if you're going to make that argument. Do you do we know for sure? Is there proof that Manx said that to Wells that this is the best thing I've written? That's what I want to credit. Do we know that? Or is he that just, or is, that, is this a conjecture? No, he he uh, Wells's original contract said that he had to get credit for everything, including writing. And the original contract he gave with Mank, who had already written, was writing some RKO radio drama up to that point, was going to give him credit. And then he uh, started realizing it was going to be good, and he asked for credit. And he started to go for a guild arbitration for it, but backed off on it for some of the reasons illustrated in there. But by m- several accounts, Wells was the one that w- wrote down that Mankiewicz should get credit and gave it to him. And the proof being in the pudding, Mankiewicz is credited over Wells. They were credited alphabetically. On top of the fact, which I point this out, it's, it's so obvious to me why you can't use his and came as a credit hog. One of the amazing instances... Wells's credit is shared with Greg Tolan. Well, yeah, that's the big, the big thing. Yeah. yeah. So we've gone that long ta- talking about Jack Kirby and Star Wars, but there was, I guess, there was a lot to talk about. But I, again, I highly recommend everyone go check back out our Pauline Kale's Raising Kane episode. I was pretty proud of that. Did episode. we? Even, yeah, I don't think you've even mentioned Jack Kirby and Star Wars yet. That's just uh, off the top. Did you? I thought I did. Oh. I said, yeah. It said you like Jack Kirby. I like Star Wars. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I've got, we're, we're, I'm, I got Mank in the mind now. Mank's on the brain. I, <laughs> you've distracted me so much now. All right. So uh, with that in mind, let's jump right in. So do you, we as long as we've been hanging out, uh, I, I have these memories of some of our first really um, post-college, maybe after I left and came back, some of our most intense sessions were based around being at Westside Denny's. And you told me, this is where you really were trying to educate me on your love of Jack Kirby. And uh, Kirby's obviously an artist you grew up with. Um, um, like, yeah. What I mean, it's a lot to say. Yeah, I mean, well, I my my first, uh, you know, one of my ground zeros in comic book reading and collecting is Fantastic Four number 57. Uh, is that the Silver Surfer Doctor Doom one? Yes. It's uh, after the Galactus trilogy where, you know, uh, this is going to be if you don't know comic book history and comic book lore, it's going to it's just so much to throw at you. But uh, Galactus was kind of like stand, it's like the Fantastic Four meet God, so that was a big deal. That was around issue fifty. I came in I, as a kid. I, I read I started around fifty seven. That's where this character called the Silver Surfer uh, is his powers are zapped by Doctor Doom and they fight the FF. And it, the, the Fantastic Four was just a, a, a mother load of ideals. It's, it's entire about a run over a little bit over a hundred issue run. Black Panther came out of there. The, the Inhumans came out of there. 
Well, um, do you want to illustrate uh, or mention what titles did Kirby co-create for Marvel? Well, basically, uh, you know, I got I just this is a new thing I was actually spouting to one of my fellow comic book geeks was that basically the pantheon of the Silver Age uh, Marvel here Marvel Universe of the '60s that almost everything is still the foundation for it. There's hardly been any heroes later day heroes that match that pantheon. I mean, Wolverine, Punisher, there's a few. But uh, Fantastic Four, X-Men, Hulk, uh, Iron Man. Um, um, Thor, right? Thor, yes. All these uh, the, the Silver big, Surfer, the which you books, mentioned. Uh, were, um, co- uh, then there, that's a whole, we can spend a whole other two hours on just the whole controversy with Stan Lee and Jack Kirby sharing the credit We'll, for we'll it. get a little into it. So anyway, uh, and I actually want to say, you know, and then it's like only characters that uh, he didn't really have a, a touch on were Doctor Strange and Spider-Man or Dick, Steve Ditko. Even though he did have some designs for Spider-Man Well, I was going to say, and Daredevil uh, is uh, uh, kind of a, uh, Jack didn't really have much to do with that. But that said, he touched all three of those, actually, in a way. Um, hmm. so there was original Spider-Man design. He did some pages, but uh, Stan didn't. He wanted to go a different way with Spider-Man, and he so he t- he tossed it over to Steve Ditko, and it was a whole new uh, re- uh, refit on that. And then Doctor Strange, Stan actually says, on print that uh, this is a character of uh, Steve Ditko's, but they had a character called Doctor Droom before that, that Kirby and Stan did, and it's basically Doctor Strange is a reworking of Doctor Droom, uh, and, and then uh, Daredevil, Jack did the cover, helped out on the cover of issue one. Hmm. on Daredevil. So it's almost because uh, Stan was always having everybody draw like Jack, you know, the, the dynamics of Jack. That was the that was the house look. And so the whole Silver Age Foundation, the MCU is, you know, basically a lot of Jack Kirby up on the big screen. Okay, I don't. I imagine you're not want to go too de- in depth with this, but one of the fascinating things I found that I, a big, a lifeline comic book fan, wasn't aware, and you were able to illustrate to me whenever ta- giving me these talks was um, when Marvel really hit the Silver Age. There was really only like was it eight titles, and they were published by DC, and so like the there there was ones that were bi monthly that they switched around between. Yeah, to make it look like they had more titles. What happened was Martin Goodman made a bad mistake. He uh, he put his uh, investment to a new this distributor, and the distributor went belly up. And so all of a sudden, Martin uh, uh, Goodman, who is the publisher of Marvel Comics since the late, uh, started as a pulp magazine company, and then they, they got into comic books uh, in 1939, 1940. Uh, he, uh, tons, he had, he, and he, he was the kind of guy, he see a trend, oh, Westerns, okay, Stan, put out 12 Westerns. Oh, uh, War? Put out 12 War? He was just a trend follower. One of my favorite legendary story. he saw Justice League of America and said, according to Stan Lee's legend, which you can, depending on how well you trust it. Yeah, that's, well, there's several different stories, there, but that, that's what the FF came out of. But what, you, what you're referring to is that, so Martin has no distributor. He uh, goes to, uh, he has to go to run to D.C. And all the, all the guys in the companies, uh, the different com- competitors knew each other. Uh, and he goes to DC, go, hey, can you help me out? I need, to, I need to get my books in the stands. DC, sure. DC had their own distributor. Said, sure, but you, uh, you're going to go eight books a month. That's all you get. We'll help you out with. And you have, and you really can't do superheroes like the way we do superheroes. 
Uh, that's a kind of a new wrinkle I read somewhere. Uh, so how do you get around it? Well, he wasn't doing superheroes at the time. That was that was when Steven that was when Dick and Kirby were doing the monster well, books. What happened in the sixties though? Well, sixty two, sixty three. The well, your Justice League story comes into play there. It's apparently the one one story is he's uh, Martin's playing golf with the DC guys and uh, they're saying, oh, hey, our Justice League book is really selling well, and uh, the, the sales are going up again. And they and and DC had started bringing back their superheroes again. So they just get relaxed on letting him publish superheroes. Well, when so. Martin comes back to Stan and says, give me a team book. Because apparently just like, but they, but if you read the first two or three issues of Fantastic Four. It's kind of a science fiction thing. They're still, monster. the monster thing is still there on the very, the cover. They're fighting a giant monster. Like they have. The well, giant, even the thing is a monster. Right. Like and I, there's no uniforms. Mm, okay. The secret identity thing is, they don't even have secret identities. So it was a slow evolution. But once they, the, the book started picking up speed and started selling, uh, and like DC was like, what's how? Why are these selling? And it's making money for DC, so it's kind of a catch twenty two for them, you know. Okay. So yeah, so uh, and it's and it's also there's a story that Stan's wife said Stan was about ready to give it up. Said screw it, I've been twenty years and I can't. I want to be a writer. I want to write the American novel. And she goes, well, look, you have nothing to lose. Write something you like to write, you know. And so he came up with this, you know, idea of the FF. But and then of course there's the whole. Kirby equation too. Okay, well let's let's get ahead to um uh I, we'll skip over like the sixties and the success in the sixties if you're okay with that. Yeah, no, no. What led to him? We're mainly going to be talking about uh, in terms of Star Wars, a uh, comic uh, Kirby did called the New Gods that uh, may or may not have influence on Star Wars. What led to Kirby going to DC? Well, what ha- you know, uh, Steve Ditko had left. He got he he butted heads with Stan on Spider Man. And he was going to his Ayn Rand objectives and uh, thoughts, so he just up and quit. Uh, they were not. Uh, there was merchandising being, uh, uh, cartoons being made, merchandising, merchandising uh, promises that were maybe thrown out there. And Martin Goodman sold the company, and Jack never got uh, what he thought was he was deserving of all this stuff he was helped co-creating. And he he would say he was actually plotting. The Marvel method is Jack would draw all 20 pages we're definitely going to get into the marvel method later in this episode because one of the fascinating things i find okay do you want to go ahead and just describe well, the marvel method? well well the marvel method is you know the, the, the stanley's writing so many titles well yeah he hasn't, he hasn't got a staff yet they haven't marvel hasn't become the big deal yet so he stands the editor and the writer for all the books so he comes up with this idea he goes i'll, I'll uh jack uh this issue uh i got this character called uh, diablo and they fight him and uh, and maybe Sue and Reed have a fight. Uh, go at it. Well, sometimes it would be pretty half like a half hour phone conversation, yes. semi detailed, and sometimes it like it could be very like two word description. Right. We uh, we don't. In, uh, I heard I heard this great description the other day of uh, Dave Gibbons talking about Frank Miller would often tell give him two words to Marvel method a story and. And given to say, end up being a great, great comic out of it too. Well, and of course, we were talking. Uh, somebody pointed out, when I was reading some stuff about Jack and Stan just last night. Both of those guys have the worst memories, and there's even a whole book. Yeah, there's uh, the John Marles of uh, Tomorrow's Company has put out a book uh, with all he's gathered up all the interviews of Jack and Stan and put them all in chronological order. And then see how everything matches up, oh and see what—it's an amazing that, book. It's an amazing. But read. that's got to be just like. Uh, and and what they were—we're going we're gonna to talk about Kurosawa later. That's yeah, what, and what and what, uh, what Jack and Stan, uh, what they thought writing meant, 
differed. You know, the, the, the word of writing there's, and plotting is, you know, it's it, it, it would flow and flex a lot. There's also guys. that great uh, um, documentary. What's the uh, BBC guy uh, did that documentary? Oh, Jonathan, got, Ro- uh, Jonathan Ross. Yeah, and, and, he, and he gets um, he gets Stanley on credit on record saying, "Well, I came up with the idea. I, that's why I say I think I'm the creator." Well, but, let me point out this thing. One, the great, another great artist on the on the legend and caliber of Jack Kirby is Wally Wood. They get Wally Wood to come to Marvel and start drawing Daredevil. He's the one who redesigns Daredevil's outfit to make it the red outfit that we mm-hmm. all know Daredevil was. Wally finally says, wait a minute. I'm basically writing the entire issue and drawing it, uh, and I'm not only getting paid once. He, and he, le- he, got, he got kind of miffed at that and left because, you know, these, these artists were basically drawing these pages without any kind of guy. It was up to them to get through 20, 21 pages. Then Stan would dialogue it. Yeah, well, that's it. We need to mention that's a key, and that uh, see, people who still use the Marvel method to this day still attribute that there. It, it, that there's bad ways of doing it, and Stanley was very talented at it. And as we get into the new do, uh, new gods, I was reading New Gods for the first time. Um, <laughs> I, when we we're trying to get our research together, I couldn't get more than three issues, and you guys had warned me about it. But is it was New Gods Kirby's first solo writing? Di- well. Yeah, he would, he would suggest pieces of dialogue. No, here well, even Joe Simon, in. he had a partner for a long time. Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, they came up with Captain America in 1941. So he's with this Joe Simon. Joe was more, they were both artists, writers. They were both, and Jack was writing. But the, this is you know the third. This is the 40s, the 50s, and the, the writing was uh, not as on a par as as every decade. The writing got more sophisticated. So yeah, but this is basically Jack's really. Uh, debut with uh, being the editor, writer, and artist. Uh, Writing all, all the dialogue, I guess, would be the thing. Uh, but let me, we, we, we got distracted here. Uh, let me go back. So, because uh, you, you wanted to see how to, how to Jack get the new guy, how he got the D, a DC. How he got DC, sure. So, uh, uh, Jack's just disappointed. He, he's not getting what he w- wants. He starts talking to Carmen Infantino, who's a, 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 the, a, the editor in charge at DC. They said, sure, yeah, come on over. You know, they're thinking FF and Hulk and the, the success Marvel's had, and and so uh, Stan uh, Jack goes to DC. Jack had had this ideal; he's been sitting on it. He was going to give it to Stan and Marvel, but he was sitting on it because he was getting disappointed and it was getting uh, disenchanted by working with Stan. He uh, was going to end Thor. Thor was going to hit his Ragnarok, and out of that, the new gods would emerge. Okay. So, and there's even an allusion to that generically, and when the new gods start at DC. So he goes to, he moves to California. He he's away off in California. Everybody's still in, uh, based in New York City. That was a, another interesting factor to all this. Uh, he does. Uh, he comes up with the the new gods, which he calls the fourth world. If you hear the term fourth world, we don't know. Nobody can pinpoint why it's called the fourth world. But he ended up doing four titles. There's a great explanation in the Tom King, Mitch Gerard, uh, Mr. Miracle series, <laughs> which uh, I'll talk about later myself. But. So he comes up, uh, they also want him to do a book that's entrenched into the uh, DC universe. And he doesn't, Jack's such a nice guy. He doesn't want to kick anybody off the book. He goes, what's your lowest selling book? It was Superman's pile, Jimmy Olsen. It was just in the dregs. So, uh, uh, they, uh, so he takes over that. And that's where the first uh, Jack Kirby stuff starts and the first appearance of Dark Side. Uh, the main villain of the Fourth World series shows up in Jimmy Olsen, and then we're then we're, we get the new gods. He started out in Jimmy Olsen. Yes, the first one is the stands. Oh wow! 
I've, I missed him. I was, uh, as a kid, I'm, I'm 11 years old. I'm not looking at Jimmy Olsen. In fact, I wasn't looking hardly at DCs at all. I thought the world was coming to an end because mm. Jack had left Marvel. I thought, how can Marvel exist? How can the FF go well, on? Let's point out real, real briefly that one of the things I love pointing out when I was, um, when I tell people about Darkseid is that Thanos right now is a very popular character around the world. Like, you know, philosophers are using, uh, he's one of the best Marvel MCU characters, at least in terms of motives. And, the D, uh, DC uh, movie universe was trying to build up to him and Marvel beat it. And like Thanos is a ripoff of dark side. No, Jim, no, it's Jim Starlin, the creator of Thanos uh, has no qualms to tell you. Yes. He was inspired, taken straight from dark side. He wanted to come up with a, a creature uh, as, as uh, evil and as big and, and mythic as dark side is. Dark side grew a lot, but it was funny reading some of his early appearances. I was thinking Thanos copter. Like it was, uh, oh, well, even, even in the comic books, I guess, you know, Thanos got bigger too, because there's this big giant two annuals one summer where everybody fights Thanos. Uh, and he was becoming the big, th- bigger thing. DC didn't really utilize dark side to much later. In fact, it was a Legion of superheroes comic that, uh, dark side shows up in the, okay. dark, the darkness saga, and now th- there's always been this problem like who who uh, Superman's villains. You know, you got this great you got this great gallery for Batman, but who who's you know toy maker? I mean, Superman's got crappy Beyond Luther and uh, yeah, Luther. You got Luther, but even so, now Dark Side has become like their go to uh, main bad guy of the DC universe, which is uh, yeah, as interesting. So anyway, he brings he has these four titles: New Gods, Mister Miracle, Forever People, and Jimmy Olsen. And what was so amazing about this is that they were all working together uh, and revealing this uh, this whole universe and, and this dark side. And there were two planets, so basically I should t- say, that um, uh, Apocalypse and New Genesis. Mm-hmm. And you had the, the nice, happy, good guys and gods on New Genesis, and you had dark side and all his minions on Apocalypse. Spelled with a K. Uh, right. And if, if you look at Apocalypse, hmm. It looks like a Death Star in fire, uh, sort of. <laughs> We're going to get to that. Uh, so. I need to mention one real thing before we start to move on to Star Wars, and this is going to be the controversial thing that I usually like to tease you about, and it's the fact that we're doing an episode dedicated to Jack Kirby. I am not a Jack Kirby fan. I And probably the problem is that Jack, everyone has, loves Jack Kirby, cites him to this day. A lot of com- people I admire treat him as if he's the birth of imagination of the last 40 years for everything in pop culture sometimes. And as an artist, I see that he's obviously he makes things look bigger and more boisterous. He's very good at like making action jump off the page. He's amazing when it comes to design and architecture. But um, when I was reading New Gods, half the time, I mean, I went mentioned his writing. I had to stop reading his writing, so I was like wa- reading the panels story, like panel by panel, to do the storytelling. And his storytelling doesn't match up to someone like Ditko's. Or there's a lot of modern people who, like, I think maybe do better. Um, one area I'm curious what you think about on this. His um, comic book artists are oftentimes credited by the amount of emotional acting based on the expressions they can draw. Like they're credited with the acting in a in a sequence and. He's got like three different faces he uses. Oh no, he, he this is this is not you're not talking uh an Al Williamson here. You're not talking uh uh you know even Neil Adams. I mean, I, I think uh no, there are people there and, and I there's super uh, superstars of the comic industry that come out and say I hate his dialogue in New Gods. They just absolutely hate it. So Sure. Uh 
but the thing about Jack is you got to, if you put it in the perspective of he's almost in, he, until he dies in '94, he is he is the comic book industry. He is the center uh, the, the centerpiece of the comic. You know, if you really want to be really eccentric and extreme, you could almost say that Jack saved the comic book industry in the seventies. Or he saved superheroes. Yeah. And I mean, you're talking the seventies, but so much of his stuff is in the sixties. Well, that's one thing. I think you haven't read enough. You, I don't, I wonder, have you no, read No, 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 you I really haven't. In I fact, think when I, you, in fact, when you get to fantastic four, you mentioned trial Galactus. That's really one of the biggest things of his. I read around the time I was getting into comics would have been late nineties would have been his last stuff. That's when he was doing the stuff he was creating for tops. And he obviously to me at that time looked very dated when like all the image titles are coming out. All I can say, and I don't, and I don't mean this. Yes, no, go say, for it. But it's go like, think of Bob, Bob Dylan. There's a lot of people who can't stand Bob Dylan. You had to go back. Well, to I mean, what? Well, no, but I'm, but I'm saying, you know, everybody loves to make you feel my love. You know, Adele singing it or uh, Garth Brooks singing it. All the uh, Bob's influence is just so monumental to music, uh, and that's what Jack is. And if whether you don't like Bob Dylan or not, you, 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 you have to throw the props to them. I'm huh. gonna. I'm just gonna leave it that there's a lot of people I admire who like Jack Kirby and um, and think that. So does that make you want to think? Well, I, I gotta see what they're. Oh saying. no, I've given that effort yeah. more times. Have you read I, the Fantastic Four run? Well, I read no. Okay, my point uh, comes up in like the third issue of New Gods. There's a sequence where it has um, light ray shooting. Uh, uh, he's shooting light at through these jewel shaped stuff at. Uh, Black Rider, which Black Rider was fascinating because is that like him being like, oh man, I didn't get enough credit on Silver Surfer. Let's That's a sort of a Silver Surfer knockoff, yes. Yeah, and he shoots through a crystal and Kirby, in the dialogue, one of the things that's so bad is, which, but it's, it, you get it, we don't, no need to harp on it, is him sh- uh, telling what he's obviously showing and doubling up Well, comic book writing and, was still that way. Stan was guilty of that. He's not this bad. But anyway, um, one of the things, when he shoots the light through it, he describes it as be creating lasers. And it's this thing that I can think of, if I read that when I was a kid, I would find that fascinating. It seems like Kirby appeals to a lot of people when they're children, when like, um, which I mean, you know, a lot of people would argue much of the comic books or the superhero medium should be aimed at children. Well, because of its wish fulfillment and its yeah, simplistic let me, let, morality. Let me point this out. There's a really I, I should have had that book out. Uh, there's this one book on comic book history, more emphasized on the '60s, '70s, and '80s, which is uh, it took an interesting uh, instead of harping over and over again on the golden age, which the golden age. The Golden Age is it's, it's the Golden Age, but it's pretty crude. They said like I love Green Island, Green Arrow uh, when Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill did the uh, and they did a very topical, talked about Martin Luther King, the population explosion, and uh, uh, the uh, feminism and all these subjects and and it was really uh, timely and that's, uh, Green Arrow's war is on drugs and blah blah blah. Speedy being a heroin addict. Yeah, exactly, and all this was stuff going on and. Uh, they said that, yeah, that's cool. It's a great book, but it's kind of timely. Whereas you look at the new gods, it's not timely. It's it is it is it is comic books. It is a universal uh, mythology uh, comic book. It's not even superheroes. What I is guess. it? Third, what is, third issue. One of the clear things was that like there's this black exploitation thing with Black Rider, where and then when he brings in like the gangster stuff and like Dark Side's like a. Um, or Ryan's having to wear a fake suit and merge in with people. Like I got this vibe that Kirby's just like, I'm tired of these writers telling me what to write. I'm going to draw what the hell I want and come up and figure out how to line it up. Well, keep he's, he's doing 60 pages uh, a month. 
you know, of which is unheard of. Most artists couldn't do that kind of that range. Is, that is really amazing range, really and amazing. and and the qual uh, that level of quality. If you look at the pencils, uh, that's why. Uh, yeah, I will give you that. And please. he, uh, you know, uh, he wanted what he wanted to do was come up with these concepts and hand it off to different artists and writers. But DC didn't want that. They wanted Jack to do another Fantastic Four. They wanted another Thor. And they wanted those kind of sales. And they wanted Jack to do it. And Jack was totally, uh, again, he got frustrated. He finally left DC and went back to Marvel because he couldn't do what he wanted to do. He let him do a couple of black and white magazines. DC didn't even put the logo on the magazines, Days of the Mob and Spirit World. And uh, and uh, they did a house ad for it, but it was really, uh, they almost like, uh, we're not gonna let this succeed. <laughs> so it's you know Jack, and of course, and, then, and Jack wants to put food on the table or his family. He's a working man. It's it's one of the essentials that I, a lot of comic book artists to this day still point out that the monthly deadline mm. um, makes is, is is the god that's over hovering over their head when they're making. Who's that one writer? David Gould, David uh, uh, David Glenn Gould. Gould, are you familiar? Yeah, right. He, he wrote. Um, Sunny side, right, right, you know. yeah. He wrote the intro for this uh, one of the new, uh, fourth world companions. Yeah, he, he uh, talks about Ted, Ted Radio, not video. Yeah, uh, he uh, in the intro, he's funny because he points out that uh, Dark Side had a uh, has a, a, a son called Calabac. Is this giant monstrous monster looking character? He shows up in New York City at issue five at the end, uh, ranting and at, on top of a skyscraper, and he points out. That I think he goes. I think Jack forgot that he did that because. The storyline goes two more issues before he gets back to Calabac in New York City, uh, and that Jack was just going, a, you know, forty thousand miles a minute. And 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 Mark, the two boys that were there, Mark Evanier and Steve Sherman, were helping Jack as his assistants. They said, you know, Jack. Well, back this goes back to Marvel's day. Jack couldn't remember the details on uniforms. He would, and that's why they had everything because he's just going. He'd do one page. And the next, he starts on the next page. And then when he finished the issue of Fantastic Four, he starts on Thor. There's a speculation that in the modern market, one of the reasons so many artists can't maintain a monthly deadline is because of the reprinting. The fact that the, a lot of these th- comics are going onto the newsstand and then disappearing, except to collectors who keep them. Whereas now, ever since the comics renaissance, like uh, in, in comics going into bookstores, trade paperbacks have been the uh, source for a lot of people reading comics who aren't buying the monthly pamphlets. All right, we are over a half hour into the episode, and we are only on to one topic. So oh. let's move on to. Um, well, we should we should we just come down to what my the genesis of my uh, revelation. Genesis, to you. I like your word. <laughs> a genesis revelation. that these talks we when we first met. Sure. Was basically it came down to two things, and I don't you know the funny thing is I don't remember when I started going whole hog on this. Uh, and well, you never fully committed. You just like I think there's something here. Well, because my 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 evolution for Jack and like I said that, that I already mentioned that I moderate a panel an hour long. You pan- started to and I cut you off. I do a pan. I have come up with an hour long panel to try to encompass Jack's entire career when it almost I can barely fit it in an hour and it, it, I can't even leave it open to Q and A unless it goes over an hour. And we still can't get to Star Wars because you have to fit in the panel. <laughs> so yeah, and I, um. Uh, but so my love and obsession over Jack has is, is, is grown as I get older and as I uh, dive more into Jack and more things are, and all his stuff is being reprinted. Almost everything of Jack's 
uh, uh, is he's so revered as being re almost everything you can get your hands on on everything Jack's done. Two things that have bugged me. Star Wars, you have the Force. 1977, the movie comes out. In 1970, 70, 70 71, uh, actually 72, I think I wrote the date down of the issue where the, the first time it's mentioned, the source is what connects the fourth world uh, spiritually. Okay. Uh, just like the force connects the Star Wars. Uh, I see. I was only a few issues in, so what I found fascinating about the source is it was like a finger in the sky writing with fire. That was when he first sees it. Uh, but then it becomes something more? It's, it becomes more because... Um, uh, everybody, uh, it seems like everybody is, and again, Jack, I don't think Jack's, Jack's doing so much so fast. He doesn't stay consistent with all of it, but there's basically, everybody has a thing called the mother box, their own personal mother box, which to me is the forerunner of everybody has their smartphones. And as, as in, in the new, uh, Tom King, Mr. Ard, uh, Mr. Miracle, it's very distinctly drawn as a, as a smartphone. Right. And so the mother boxes. Are different sizes, and they do their, and they pretty much can do whatever you need. So, Mister Miracle, he's on Earth. He's a New Genesis kid, a uh, young man who's on Earth. He's an escape artist. He makes his money on Earth. He his mother box helps him out do his escapes. The Forever People are kind of Jack's uh, uh, representation of hippies of that time period, and they're a group of kids, and they have a big box, mother box. They all put their hands on, and they become uh, the thing. They all turn into the Infinity Man. It fights these uh, st stories. Um, and then Orion has a mother box. And Orion is the main character of New Gods. And he is, uh, his visage of his face, he looks like a nice, normal superhero face. But really, his face is really disfigured and ugly looking. And he has the mother box, helps disguise that look by putting on a better face. Um, so, so that, and they're all, and the mother boxes are all connected to the source. I think that's where. I think that's where, I mean, that's my interpretation. Was there ever any treatment that the source is somehow religious? Does it ever have any kind of like Buddhist yeah, it's, vibes it's, on it? It's got a, it's, it's got a, a powerful, spiritual, supernatural connection vibe to it. Uh, but I don't think if Jack got to flesh it out uh, or uh, forgot to flesh it out as much as it should have been. Okay. Um, that's okay. That's the one thing. Source, force. I was like, wait a minute. That's really cutting it close. I mean, uh, and then number two, uh, everybody just, you know, lost their pants over the Empire Strikes Back when, you know, Luke, I'm your father. And uh, it was a big deal, right? When you saw it, was it a big deal? When you, uh, or, was it, or you knew it already? We can get into this or we can just ignore it just because one of the big generational divides is my generation, my, my brother, all my friends, Star Wars is the North Star. And so I don't remember ever knowing a time where I've never seen Star Wars. I remember, Do you remember seeing Star being... Wars as a kid, and I remember seeing like it all the way from beginning to end where I was like a moviegoer when I was like seven or something like that. But Empire and Jedi, just, I remember as a kid being like, I want to watch the one with... Um, I want to watch the one where there's both the star battle and the sword fight at the end, and which even though New Hope has that too. But. Well, I, I just remember that, you know, in Empire, everybody was like, oh, wow. Darth and, and Luke Skywalker, there's father and son, that's, oh my. Well, I had that same kind of feeling back in uh, March of 72, New Gods, number seven. We're into seven issues before we uh, we find this out. It's a story called The Pact. 
where uh, and it's Jack and his wife uh, Roz consider their favorite story. And you see high, you see the the father of high uh, father of New Genesis, the main. He's the opposite of dark side of apocalypse, and he's here and he's and you see him younger. It's a flashback story, and with the, and we find out is this source. Oberon? Huh? Is this Oberon? No, Oberon's no. A he's a character. He's a human character on Earth. We'll get to him later because he's he he has a really cool role. In but the, the pack. Uh, so there, there's well. this big battle with Steppenwolf. Anybody, if you were if you're up on your DC movies, Steppenwolf was the big bad guy in the in the Justice League movie. Um, the Joss Whedon cut. <laughs> So uh, Stephen Wolf, uh, they're fighting, and uh, High Father, you know, uh, decides to go a peaceful route. So they decide he negotiates with Dark Side, and they come up with this thing called the Pact. They exchange their sons. And at this point, we don't know. Uh, up to, we're 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 a couple years into New Gods, Forever People, Mister Miracle. We're into several issues of these things. We do not know who the father Mister Miracle is. We do not know the father Orion is. In this story, the two sons that are exchanged are Orion and Mr. Miracles, whose name is Scott Free. Uh-huh. There's a there's a cool panel, I want to say in issue two, where it's one of the first cool uh, close-ups of Darkseid's face where he says, like, uh, we he must treat him as our enemy even if he was our son or something like that. Um, Which is weird because, I mean, if he's going at this pace, then he has trouble remembering plot lines. <laughs> that level of foreshadowing is still yeah, pretty cool. Oh, well, yeah. He, there, I mean, he, there were some things that were really... He, he, I, he had... But he... And, he, and he, apparently he would tell Mark and Steve, he would say, oh, well, the ne- here's the next story, and he would tell them. And then when Steve and Mark would see the drawn pages, it was totally different because Jack's mind was just racing so far ahead. So anyway, the two sons are exchanged, and all of a sudden we find out Darkseid's son, Orion, is the good guy of New Genesis, the main warrior for the, all the good guys. And Scott Free is raised on Apocalypse, and he's beat it and abused. And uh, one of the abusers is a character called Granny Goodness, is a really f- a fun character. And, like, Scott Free, is he married to Big Barda in this? No, but Barda's a, a fellow student, a fellow, a fellow uh, Apocalypse. They're all going through these trainings to become warriors for Apocalypse. And Big Barda is a, a, the female Furies, and Scott's over here with the— and they all shave their head off, they're all ball-headed. And, but there's this character called Hyman, Who's uh, who hides down in Apocalypse, and he uh, manipulates Scott to leave Apocalypse, and so by th- oh I need, I need to back up. The pact is they exchange the sons, and the idea is if one of the sons leaves uh, the planet of their where they've been placed, the war will break out again. So when Scott shows up on Earth, the he, war breaks out. They're back at it again. Okay. The New Genesis and Apocalypse. So those two things, the father-son reveal and the force of source, I'm like, wow. And I always thought, I mean, I'm like, did George read this? Did, I mean, or it just, you know, he actually stumbled on it on his own. Uh, George Lucas, I'm just thinking. And I'm like, in 1970, George was 26 years old. Okay, so, well, first off, if you do a Google on the internet, there's a, after you deliver this theory, this your theory of this is like 10, 15 years old, from my vantage point. Um, but on the internet, like, I know Paste Magazine had an article on it. I think The Onion may have had an article on it. They cite three. They cite your two reasons, and then they point out, I don't know if you find this genetic, generic, but... Um, Doctor Doom kind of looks like Darth Vader. Well, yeah, now that's going. And then they cite a specific scene. I I don't remember which Fantastic Four issue it's from, but it's uh, Doctor Doom standing up from behind a table, probably in Latveria or something like that. 
And then they reference the sequence in Empire Strikes Back where he gets up behind the dinner right, table. Right, the dinner table. In fact, I think that dinner table scene, the Doctor Doom, I, I, I should know better. And don't, please don't crucify me, folks. Listen. You and, don't know those supposed to fuck uh, your time? I think that's the episode. I think it's a two-parter where uh, Jack was riffing off of the Prisoner TV series. Oh, you have mentioned this to me before. Uh, yeah, the cool. FF are invited. Uh, they're trapped in a, a village that Dr. Doom is in charge of. But uh, uh, the, no, yeah, no, no, no. The I, only reason I haven't, we haven't talked about Dr. Doom yet is because that's Marvel. That's a Stan Jack that's thing. That's not a new God thing. Yeah, it's not a new God thing. But no, no. Uh, I always, I'm thinking Darth Vader, Dark Side. You know, that's kind of interesting. And then, yeah, the whole Darth Vader thing is a Dr. Doom riff. Uh, uh, man behind with a bird mask. Well, then, like, then of course that's a precedent. It goes back all the way to the Man Iron Mask and, sure. and all kinds of stuff. Even though Doctor Doom, uh, I think Stan's version of Doctor Doom uh, and the most uh, 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 perceived version is that he's scarred underneath it really bad. Yeah, uh, and he, that's why he and he went ahead and put the metal over him to cover that up. Jack later, I don't know if Jack did this initially, but Jack has this theory that Doom is so egotistical and so vain. I thought it was a John Byrne theory. Was it, or was it John maybe? You, you had told me it was a John Byrne maybe theory. Maybe it was so, John, or, or John ripping off a of Jack. I don't know what together, I don't know. And now, yeah, I, I didn't really look it up uh, fast But the, he's so vain. He yeah, there's this one little tiny scar on his face that made him uh, put the, the, the cover all that up, uh, his whole body. Um, maybe that is the Jack one because the story I heard was that there was something along the lines of that he was too impatient to put the mask on while it was still on oh, fire. Oh, the hot! The, I think that the the the, the, the mask uh, was still hot. That scarred him up. That was a John Byrne. I think that's a John Byrne. That's probably what where I think out. I think a Jack's take now or before he died, or right before he died was that if you took his mask off, you just see one little tiny scar. He was a good looking guy. Which, to be fair, in a in a really her- heretical but cool way Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars played around with and finally full-blown revealed his face and but then played around with in a real yeah. way so just from a practical standpoint here's here's what part of what I'm thinking so Lucas graduated from USC in 67 where was Marvel Comics's biggest popularity at besides maybe kids college, college camp- campuses uh, yes yes so Lucas according to um, you might want to go into this a little um, f- there's a filmmaker he went to school with named Ed- Edward Sumner Summer. I think he was working on a movie uh, called The Men Who Made Comics. Yeah. And he has uh, Lucas quoted as being a comic book fan, but more talking anthropologically. And, you know, he doesn't get the. He starts offhand, mentions Joseph Campbell, which we'll get into later. <laughs> but um, he also talks about that Lucas and his sister had a comic book collection as a kid. And their comic book collection was more based on. Um, probably newspaper-based stuff, but it was also Flash Gordon and Prince Valiant type stuff. That was over the time. Comic strips. Yeah, because the introductions he was giving later were things for like, um, uh, he was doing for uh, uh, Scrooge uh, Scrooge McDuck and uh, I think Prince Valiant or uh, Al Williamson. Well, Scrooge McDuck is, I mean, you want to know what? We can go to a whole, another avenue where uh, you talk about Indiana Jones, how much he owes to uh, the Scrooge McDuck adventures. Really? Really. Uh, and well, then that uh, makes sense. So, but uh, yeah, I think uh, he's uh, George is more comic strip oriented, and of course, we uh, you know the thing was he wanted to do Flash Gordon. He basically just flat out 
So the, it's, it's, I want to do after American Graffiti. I'm going to do Flash Gordon. So it's King Syndicate that did Flash Gordon. They own. They own. So Flash. he went to New York. I have in the early '70s and tried to get them to get the rights, and they refused him because they wanted to make the movie with Fellini. And <laughs> Fellini at the time, I don't know. He was he was having these like random meetings with Stan, Stanley, or at least he had one. Well, they, and, one. And, and Fellini was a buddy buddy with comic book artists in, in France and in Italy and New York. Yeah, I think that's and, mainly because he like he just like Spider Man and Alan Renee. And Fellini both had meetings with Stan. Well, Renee, they, had they got the script. Stanley write a script. Yeah, for him. yeah. But did Fellini ever have a script? For I don't him? think they ever got to script format. But uh, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, Lucas then gave up on it. And I do want to ask you real quickly because I just this still sticks out to me. Um, when you first saw THX 1138, uh, first off, does the theatrical open with the Flash Gordon thing? And what did you think of that when you saw it? Uh, I just, you know, I just thought it was in line with more the code dystopian. Uh, you know, bleak science fiction films of the time. You know, uh, Silent Running and 2001. But I'm talking about the Flash Gordon clip at the very beginning. I don't. Uh, it's been a while. I, I don't. I, I don't even actually don't it remember. It is bizarre. Uh, yeah. I didn't know. I for a while I thought it was. I didn't know if it was in the theatrical or is it only in the special edition. I don't remember it. So maybe it was only in the uh, uh, only on the DVD on the home disc. I don't know. That'd be a good. That would be something to uh, look up and research. <laughs> I guess. Well. Because I always point out that he didn't really touch much of American graffiti except to add sequence in, except the opening shot of the movie has an ILM sunset. They replaced the sunset in the background of the episode. Uh, um, the somebody, I was re- when I was reading up a little bit on this, uh, uh, a lot of this is just off the top of my head, over the, uh, all the knowledge in my head uh, that's gathered. But somebody, I did re- look up some stuff. Somebody said, I have never, I don't think I've really sat down and watched completely back-to-back all the Flash Gordon serial with Buster Crab. But somebody said that if you watch that, you're going to go, oh, wow, uh, comparing it to Star Wars, the, the, just like the, the wipes and the, and the lot of, and the city clouds and all this stuff that you see in the Flash Gordon, you'll see in Star Wars. And I guess I want to, that's basically, if I can go ahead, I don't know where you want to, I'm letting you guide this. But I do want to mention real briefly, our last episode guest, Glenn Kenny, uh, he uh, edited a book on Star Wars, and that was one of his main contentions that uh, he, that, at the time Star Wars came out, it was called, considered science fiction. P- people like him that were really into the uh, science, the new wave of science fiction from the late 60s, early 70s, really dismissed that theory. Harlan Ellison, um, Ballard, they would say things along the lines that it's really more um, people who like Flash Gordon type stuff, where it's adventure stories and like in, in space, but it's not with lasers, but it's not speculative fiction or anything science based. But where did you want to go? Well, what I want to say is basically, George, it seemed to me, he had no problem name-dropping Kurosawa and, and Hidden <laughs> Fortress. He had no name, and we know about the Flash Gordon attempt, and he has no, uh, and his love for uh, Flash Gordon. Yeah, I think he's t- he's trapped in but, Flash well, Gordon. Well, yeah, and, and plus the Flash Gordon it ha- has a, uh, you, you got to understand, at one point, uh, every comic book artist wanted to be a comic strip artist. You got, you know, Milton Kniff got on the cover of Time magazine. Al Cap with Little Abner, Alex Raymond. These guys were big superstars amongst the general population. Uh, they were as, as big as anybody, as George Lucas or Spielberg are now, uh, doing a comic strip. But the adventure strips, you know, died out. You know, Peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes and all that stuff came along in Doonesbury, and the, and the strips got smaller and smaller. And finally, the adventures are hardly uh, at all. So he had no problem name dropping these things that are not, uh, but 
I think it goes back to being comic books, even to this day, because you know, uh, uh, superhero movies are not cinema, according to Martin Scorsese. Uh, they're still marginalized. The comic books, in some still weird way, as as me, as much as we think they're getting more accepted, it's still marginalized. So I think it almost. George didn't want to acknowledge that he was using some comic book sources. I, I think you're thinking of this dated. I think whenever it came out, he didn't want to do it, which is why it's bizarre that he hasn't come out and said it. But I don't know if to help old, Jacks, you know. Uh, I think he's trapped. He got trapped into the like. Um, no, law. Joseph Campbell is the basis of all I was interested in. I was only interested in sociology. Or well, and, talk and, about tell are, me about the Joseph Campbell thing. You need to uh, give them a rundown. On that. The Joseph Campbell uh, theory wrote a book called "The Hero of a Thousand Faces." I, do we really need to talk about this? Because "Hero of a Thousand Faces" got bastardized by Hollywood screenwriting <laughs> in so <laughs> many ways, and and, the most, and, it, and it was a bad influence on Hollywood because it made people. Uh, tied three acts. It made people do the hero's journey is the basis of every single fucking story. Well, and, it, and then the thing that bugs me, which has been pointed out by uh, one of my favorite film critics, uh, film crit Hulk, that a um, lot of bad uh, blockbuster movies always make their second act of the uh, um, hero doubting himself and like the Dark Knight of the Soul, as it's described. And in Star Wars, it's the sequence whenever uh, Uncle and Aunt Peru get killed and you come back to the um, Luke's house and you see it's on fire and their skeletons are on fire. And uh, Searchers. Luke, sure. But he, but Film Crit Hulk points out that whole sequence between him saying, telling Obi-Wan, I have to stay home. No, I'll go with you. Last 11 seconds. And some modern-day blockbusters base their entire second act over this like really uncharacteristic... No, I can't accept my destiny. And then the third act's like, I accept my destiny and do what I should have done 40 minutes ago. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like Campbell was uh, just looked at looked at the literature and, and and came up with these charts and uh, overview. I mean, Iliad and the Odyssey. I mean, you, you know, look at, I mean, we, it, and of course, nothing's new under the sun, as we all know. Well, what's fun, a lot of modern day I've seen from it, although I'm, I don't know what I think of this guy, but Jordan Peterson seems to be a big, and he seems to be basically off young, but like a lot of these like miss, it, and what, what bugs me when you do it from a storytelling standpoint is it's always reductive, where just like the hero does this, and the hero feels this, and this is the hero's journey. And the reductiveness makes writers force themselves into guidelines as opposed to like trying to make a story more evocative of life or how a human emotions work. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> and you said sucking into a guideline. That's the thing about Jack. I don't think he never, he never would, uh, put down on paper a guideline. Jack is going off the top of his head. That's why we get some of the continuity and some of the writing he did and some of the errors, but it was just, Every issue, there was a new ideal being thrown at you, going, "Oh my gosh, this is cool! Oh, this is cool! This is cool!" Uh, just over and over again until DC pulled the plug on it. Real briefly, I do want to ask you something. Um, Kirby's influence. One of the things the MCU was really good at with superhero costumes, mainly, was that they adapted a lot of these two-dimensional costume designs. And I was pointing out that Kirby's good at design, but when MCU started doing stuff, they had to like say something like Scarlet Witch's costume, which is supposed to come up in the WandaVision show. They had to make them look good in film and in movement, and even though film, for the most part, is a 2D medium, it still had to look real movement. Yeah. Where is Kirby's actual influence on film? Because like, I think in the MCU, really, all it is is Thor Ragnarok. Uh, no, you're, you're just, no, well, I mean, the characters themselves are Jack, 
you yeah, know. Yeah, of course. I'm and, not, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm staying beyond the obvious. I'm talking about his visual influence. Well, because I mean, the the Ultimates were one of the biggest designs of, of that. So you here's I'm the not, thing: I'm not going to single uh, credit. Well, now we're going to go back to uh, I'm Brian gonna go, Hitch is what I'm going to say. I'm going to go back to. Well, then I'm going to have to go back to his. He became the house style. Jack was a, apparently like uh, one artist, uh, a major artist. Uh, I don't want to uh, uh, mention his name, and though I read, I, uh, but he he I basically would almost like was in tears because Stan was badgering. Draw more like Jack. This guy was a uh, was a romance comic book writer, artist, and he had a you know this uh, the Jack's uh, uh, the foreshadowing the, he, the the body language, uh, the energy level that Jack was able to show in the Marvel universe when it started up. That's what uh, that that became the template of all comic book superhero uh, language. And then, of course, John Basimo took over as a house style. There is a, there's a book I remember from middle school, our middle school library. Yeah, that's yeah. The, John did that. And one of my pet theories on people will complain that the MCU movies, all even as they get all these great auteurs to do it, who give up Final Cut, and then the movies end up looking the same and feeling the same. My pet theory is that they're producer-based movies that have a particular house style for the directors. Right. The So Jack, I mean, if you look at Neil Adams... He brought it the super realism to comic books. He was doing a comic strip that was a Ben Casey comic strip before comic books. Gil Kane was over at DC doing this kind of how DC had a house style. They thought Jack and Steve Dicko were crappy, cruddy artists. They could why is this selling? They they would look at this stuff. Is it because of the coloring? Maybe it's the coloring that's making it sell. Who are the uh, notable artists that were doing this? Was like uh, Infantino still? We got coming. Well, he was he, when he got bumped up. He didn't draw as much. He got Murphy Anderson and. Uh, uh, Kurt Swan, and uh, these are probably artists. I'm not even sure you. Uh, I know a little Kurt, 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 Kurt Swan. Swan. Kurt Swan would have he, shit on Kirby. Uh, well, no, no. I mean, no, he's not shit. It's the it's the management. Oh, they're oh, trying management. Sorry, they're trying to examine why is Marvel selling because to them it looked like crude. Because Jack was a crude artist. Jack is his. You know, he's not his anatomy is. I remember Jim Lee in a documentary saying, you know. Oh, I, I I didn't care much for Jack when I was young, and then I started you know becoming an artist myself, and then I started examining Jack, and I go, oh, that squiggle there, that's uh, muscle uh, texture, and, and that's oh, I see what he's doing here, and uh, that's really interesting because ja- Jim Lee was my favorite artist well, when yeah. I was when I was thirteen. It was funny too. This it's a great l- l- documentary on the uh, uh, Jack and. It, uh, all these artists say, "No, I wasn't really a Jack fan originally. I no, I was Jack, or they, or they became, uh, they were fans of Jack in his later stage of art, which is even more interesting." But Walt, they get to Walt Simonson, and he goes, "Well, I don't know about those other guys, but I was always a fan of Jack Kirby." Uh, and uh, but um, you were asking me, he brought this energy and uh, stylistic. But you know, you saw like with the X Men movies, they, when they decided. Uh, that predate the MCU, they they put them in leather jackets because they didn't yeah, think the spandex. They're still doing the Matrix and like there's that really mm-hmm. great moment in uh, Whedon, John Cassidy, Astonishing X Men number one, where they're they're just like we have to leave the spandex behind. We're superheroes. We have to. Yeah, there has to be there. Nobody's been brave enough to really just go full tilt in it. But the funny thing is, in the first Captain America movie, when Chris Evans is in that uh, uh, yeah. propaganda Captain America outfit, that's really the Captain America outfit with spandex. And it doesn't seem to be that bad, does it? Uh, you know? Uh, well, it's especially better than the Whedon's first X-Men, or first Avengers movie, too. So. But, um, well, let me, uh, real quickly, one of the, my favorite artistic things that I do love about Kirby, although I loved how art, other artists took it on and did it, have you ever seen Kirby Dots in a movie? 
Well, you, you get to see him finally in Ragnarok. I mean, that's what you see. Where the, are they in Ragnarok? In the, in the background, the, the design on the walls, I think. Are they like like energy bubbles or how uh, they were? The crackle, the Kirby crackle. Uh, I don't th- I don't know if we've really... Because um, there's such a great comic book design. Those, when I was a teenager, I loved the shit. I wonder if somebody's... Rep- I'm trying to think of, you know, if that's been... Uh, but yeah, there's there's the, de- the design work on the walls and stuff in Ragnarok. Uh, very Kirby-ish. I mean, very all pronounced Kirby. But uh, here's something I wanted to throw at you. And this is going to be, like I said, this is maybe too radical and weird. Um, in some ways, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is actually a step backwards in terms of where the superhero genre can lead to. Because uh, when Jack was doing New Gods and you look at it and examine it, it's like, what is this? Is this a science fiction? Is this fantasy? Is this even superheroes? These are these are gods fighting amongst each other with the earth as a backdrop. And that, that, was, that was a lot of people. But some people still want, I want Daredevil. I want the, you know, I want a guy with a cape. And and a lot of kids did could not sink into that. So, uh, so okay, so that's like, you know, that was a step forward. So now, we get Star Wars in 77. We get the Matrix. For, we get the Star Wars and Matrix before we get more, uh, comic book movies. I will admit, as someone who is a weekly comic book reader um, with a bunch of superhero crime fighters, I find, we've, I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the episode before, but we've talked about this in person. The superhero concept is so goddamn fascist. It is so, this idea and It's very insular, cr- too. Well, crime needs to be stopped by having people swing around and beat up people that without a trial. And it's so, and like, um, one of my favorite current writers is Brian Michael Bendis. And uh, when he switched to DC, they used the similar ads that they used when Kirby <laughs> came over. It said, in Superman's uh, logo letters, it said, Kirby is coming. And then when Bendis came over, it said, Bendis is coming. But he has this t- tendency to write that, like, these superheroes come from a place that they need to change the world for better and they need to do something about it. But then they turn around and beat up crime. And, like, there's always a, a, well, it's a, a, cult, it's a, a cult. bank robbery. And, like, it leads people to believe that crime is much worse, which allows to, like, more, um, you know, give, let the police do whatever they need to be doing to solve these crimes that may or may not be happening. It's a cul-de-sac, uh, intellectual cul-de-sac. I mean, we're, uh, you know, I keep on thinking... You know, I need to read you know great literature before I die, and instead of reading uh, guys in pajamas fight beating up each other. Uh, I guess I just heard the other day uh, uh, argument for n- uh, more graphic based nonfiction, just because it's way more effective. It, it it communicates stronger to people who don't read more consistently. It's probably a uh, a cooler or warmer medium to use the McLuhan term. But anyway. But do you see what I'm? Do you, can you can you can you see what I'm a little bit of what I'm saying? We th- th- it was a step forward in terms of comic book characters and storytelling and uh, the whole fact that four books were interlocked and going back and forth and revealing like an onion it was like unpeeling like an onion i mean i'm a huge fan in in 1970-71 this is not it hadn't been done before there had been crossovers but nothing at, at, at this degree so we get star wars and matrix and other films because they were able to pull off the special effects we couldn't uh you know, because when they get to the third Matrix, and you got the uh, the Neo fighting, what's his name? It's it's basically uh, it's two uh, superheroes it, banging each other. It's Captain Marvel and Superman fighting each other. I mean, they got we got we finally got to a point where we could pull off the superhero realistically, but that's actually going backwards because of this. Uh, I, I this, think I think you need to laser down on this theory. Are yeah. you trying to con- attribute that they're just expanding genre? Are they becoming mythological? Is that well, yeah? What you think it, it is? It, it, I think I mean, uh, it's, well, you know, some have said that after the Watchmen comic book, not the movie, 
the Watchmen comic book is like, there's no need to do any more superhero comic books. <laughs> it's the be all end all there. Uh, we've, we've reached the, we've reached, you know, after 1939, Superman shows up and then we get to 1985, you know, 86. What, do you, what else is there to do? You know, what else, where can you go? But the, but the next step is on it, on, a, on, a, on a, the Kirby new gods, fourth world level. I guess I would which, go with the, uh, uh, Warren Ellis, Mark Miller, authority stuff, where they have to start changing. Well, do, or, that's, that's, or Miracle Man. That's that, that's doing. commenting and deconstructing. No, it's not. It's it's like what if it's, if a, a character was really that big, they would have to change the world somehow. And right, and I mean that's what Watchmen, uh, you know, was all uh, right. Ground zero. <laughs> Okay, there's also getting back to the other the the thesis of the episode. Uh, John Marrow, who's a uh, editor for the John Morrow. Morrow. Was, Morrow. Did I say Edward Marrow? I think you said Marrow. Yeah, Morrow. I guess his not, company's called Tomorrow's. Not, not Saint Vincent Edward R. Okay, gotcha. Um, he has quoted as saying, "There are too many similarities for me to believe Kirby wasn't some kind of influence on Lucas." Um, I wanted to then. Turn back onto uh, Lucas. We are recording on the day that David Prowse died. Darth Vader died, and we're also recording um, in a week where uh, the you're not you haven't watched any of the Mandalorian yet. But the Mandalorian this week had a very particularly Kurosawa-based episode where, like, uh, the the um, force in the episode was straight from Ron. Um, the uh, um, city for or the forest was based from Ron, and the ci- the city was based out of. Seven Samurai. I wanted to go into some other potential influences on Star Wars. We just watched beforehand this uh, short from the uh, National Film Board of Canada called 2187 by uh, Arthur Lipset. And you had a very great reaction to it, which was, why did we watch this? Well, you know, it was funny. Once you said that about the for- the force, I mean, I, I, I did think that a little bit. I'm like... I was looking for Star Wars connections. The short mentions the Force in a religious context, yeah. even though it's mentioned as like this non-diegetic guy talking randomly about religion. And he says it's a Force that combines people. I'm just saying, if I hadn't, if you had shown that to me with that, uh, with this uh, with a topic on our mind, I think I would never have uh, thought about Star Wars. Well, what it. what bugs me in the other, I had I was watching it for the first time too with you, and it really my thing bugaboo over the years with Lucas is he's talked forever about he wants to stop doing he wants to do these tone poems, artistic based stuff, and he wants to start get away from the movies he he boxed himself into the blockbusters with uh, Star Wars and Indiana Jones, and especially if you look at the, the THX 138 uh, uh, Blu-ray DVD, they have a lot of his college shorts on there, and they're very similar to this, uh, uh, this um, 2187. And there's not, it was bugged me over the years, there's been nothing stopping him since pretty much 1983 to be making these movies, especially, like, I, he's retired twice, it feels like. I mean, yeah, he could make, you know, he could just take his time and do whatever. I mean, I'm one of these people that I know Star Wars people will ride me or tar and feather me when I say this, but I don't think he had, uh, I don't think he had uh, trilogies in mind when he did the first one. He very clear. Oh, he, he, he clearly expand. well, you've had this theory that, uh, well, we both. Everyone has this theory. He had no idea. He didn't want to do beyond one movie. He like because uh, it's made. It, 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 when you watch it, if you really watch it, watch it, uh, and not just you know I'm a Star Wars fan. I love, uh, and try to think about all the continuity history. If you just watch it objectively, as, as much as objectively as you can, 
it's like it's the whole idea is that you drop in on a Saturday morning cereal. You start in media res, yeah. and, you know, and uh, well, there's a quote I reread it today from our past guest Paul Hirsch's book. Uh, they were talking about the very end of the movie after the Death Star blows up, and Lucas came in one day and said, "Hey, I want to get in a shot of Darth Vader escaping." And it was after they reshot, so Hirsch had to work in some heads and tails of a shot where, like, they you know they had a spinning ca- uh, camera on a spinning mount. And so they make it look like the mount is like correcting itself and then flying away and they use some other shot to like set up that Darth Vader survived. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and I, I guess we should go, you know, we're uh, Kurosawa, you brought up the Kurosawa, the, the, the <laughs> Uh, you know, and of course, you know, I'm thinking about everybody. The first thing I heard the first season, the first episodes, everybody was going, Spaghetti Western, Spaghetti Western. It is really weird. And of course, it's very what did uh, Sergio do? And he got in trouble. Fistful of Dollars is a direct ripoff of Ojimbo. Yeah. So and, they're tied together. And what's funny is this episode is also a Ujimbo slash uh, uh, Red Harvest kind of riff. Although what's frustrating is. I mean, I love the look of the Mandalorian show, and this is totally another riff, maybe another episode. My feelings about John Favreau as a filmmaker writer, but it's so they make it so obvious that like he comes to town, and he's like, I gotta play off sides. It's very much like Kirby overwriting, where he has to explain something that seems pretty obvious. And then of course we ought to mention we can't, you know, uh, again, George is never. I guess I guess the big the big deal of this whole uh, Shane has dragged me into this. That the whole big deal is that I just it'd be nice if George would throw a, 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 some flowers toward uh, Jack uh, because you know he has no problem with Alex Raymond and uh, Kurosawa and like uh, Rivenstall with the, the 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 end you know I think he that's been credited yeah no yeah no he, I'm, I'm saying oh you're he, right oh. He's, I'm saying he's, he can he can credit a that's Nazi, because but he can't credit Jack yeah I mean that because that's film history that's for film buffs it's more legit uh, in terms of uh, in the in the in the in the, the popular culture, but again, it goes back to comic books being over in this little, little corner. Uh, I remember one of my friends uh, uh, mentioned how uh, one time he said uh, comic books and, and if uh, is the the pimple on the butt of pop culture, you know, because it's just uh, <laughs> well, that's a problem. It's not anymore. It's very clearly well. You think it? it is, but it's again, you know, well, no, it, it's, it, I don't, I don't think it is. I think mainstream well, superhero comics are, and rightfully so. But like, I mean, you look at uh, like. I don't know, Adrian Tomini or something like that. Like he, you know, he's or Art Spiegelman. They Dan Klaus. Yeah, and like the, the Hernandez brothers. I think even the snobbiest New Yorker reader knows. Oh, they've been doing my covers for a while. Right. Uh, I will. I, we all should mention that you know now that Disney bought up Marvel, they Disney's got this like one this this Hall of Fame, uh, you know, uh, imagination engineers or an innovators or something came up with this. That they, it's a it's a you know, it's the like Imagineers the, thing. Imagineers thing, and they, they and they and they do a presentation and have people talk, and they give out a, a you know, I guess it's a, there's somewhere in the Disney headquarters or somewhere there's these you know a, a, a trophy on the wall or whatever, and there's a you know booklet on it or something, and they made Jack one of them uh, up there on the statue of Walt Disney. So I mean, Jack is getting. I just think it's it's going to be a, a long haul, but I think we're you know we're, we're it's it, and again you've you've watched it with me. And 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 you saw what Tom King did with this Mr. Miracle. Uh, it's it's just this it's just this really. Uh, Do we want to talk Mr. Miracle? Uh, or, or Tom yeah, King's Mr. Miracle. Yeah, you want to? So, oh yeah. my God! Because what happened was I pledged like to. <laughs> When I first introduced this episode, we, we, we had some bad miscommunication because um, I was going to read New Gods and I was going to try to read Mr. Miracle. Um, 
we were both going to watch Hidden Fortress. And in my back of my head, I kind of wanted to reread the Tom King, Mr. Miracle, the Eisner winning series from uh, just, oh, it's only like two or three years Oh, it's old. wonderful. It's wonderful. Oh, my God. I've, I've had some people that I respect to slog it, too. But. Well, I want to hear that in a second. But what ended up happening was I read three issues of New God and jumped right away and just, just, just reread the Tom King series. And it's so good. But it is also <sighs> literally a series that calls Jack Kirby God because he appears as Oberon in there. And he's God in multiple issues. His, um, uh, he, when he dies, his gravestone is Oberon Kurtzberg, was his... Uh, ja- Jack's real name. Last yeah, name. his real first name was Jacob, so the child uh, is named Jacob in there. Um, he's based off a character called The Lump. Is that... Do you remember? There's a character, there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a, oh, uh, by the way, spoiler that halfway through the, sh- the series, they have a kid. Oh, by the way, there's an episode in, in Mr. Miracle where Oberon and Scott are in a compactor getting. Really? Where, where have we seen that before? Hmm. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to bring that back up when we get around to Hidden Fortress. But Big Barda is supposedly based off Roz Goldenstein, Jack's wife. Well, in terms of the relationship, probably, but not the look. He actually based that on a. Uh, what's her name? Lady Kazan, whatever. Okay, I'm, I'm saying her name wrong. You saw a, a Playboy pictorial that. Well, and then who's the funk, Lady Kazan? I don't know. Funky character in there. Funky Flashman is Stanley. It, it was. Uh, was he? Was he always in the New Gods? For yes. Uh, Jack was still pretty uh, pissed at okay. Stan, so he made a, a parody of Stan and Roy Thomas. Okay, and so in Tom King in Mitch Garage uh, miniseries, there's this like basically they have the kid, and so the kid's nanny is is funky and he's based off Stanley and he talks like Stanley and uh, he at one point keeps calling uh, Jacob genius Jack over and there's this point late in it where uh, they describe um, coming up with a variant it involves like a silver surfer being a golden retriever but they Jacob as an infant who can't talk yet comes up with this imagination story and and convincing Scott that's like, oh, your son came up with, we, we came up with this story together. And Funky's like, I come up with the words and Jake and uh, Jack comes up with the imagination is the way it's phrased in the comic. It's, oh, yeah. And that's, this is barely, this, there's a cigar uh, aspect. Uh, uh, like, there's just, this series is so damn good because it's also about the nature of existence and it's uh, got it opens with a suicide attempt. There's a, it gets dark, depression. Why didn't your friends like this? No, no, I'm not saying friends. I'm saying uh, uh, people in the industry. Uh, some I don't know. I, I didn't read the. I didn't. I I've, I've, I I can't give you. There's specifics. an argument to be made, and uh, King has two comics out right now. He's redoing Rorschach and he's doing Strange Adventures. And like the first few issues, he takes a while for it reveals what this what the thing's about. Oh, I know. It was it's a noted cartoonist and comic book creator. He uh, he he did. He says no. He, uh, Tom King didn't get it at all. It's not it's not anything uh, resembling Kirby. And I'm not I'm not sure that's the point there. But what was his argument? Do you remember? I yeah, I don't I don't remember there. And is he and is he beholden to representing Kirby? Oh, he loves Kirby. This this yeah, he's a big Kirby fanatic. But uh, I mean, okay, but uh, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I I set you up to ask for this, and if you don't have, uh, but uh, the um, going back to you say you know the dialogue with the new gods, it, I've that's a, that's another big thing. I've, I think I've talked to you both over the years about. So it's where does comic book writing start becoming sophisticated enough good. that you're not embarrassed? Because even uh, as much as Stanley, it was a, it was a step up in writing. 
some of that stuff, if you read it now, even that, that's kind of hard to read as Stan stuff. Yeah, uh, and I, you're arguing my argument when you're the one that loves this stuff, too. Yeah, well, I was there. It's, it's a sentimental nostalgic. It could be the tyranny of nostalgia uh, playing sure. uh, playing a game on me. Well, uh, uh, let me let but me, I think, let me, let me, uh, they brought out, uh, let me point out one other thing about the new gods. Uh, he had these four titles, uh, and he was, un- it was like an onion. He was really, really all, how these all interconnected. And, uh, 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 what was the point of that? Uh, oh, the uh, and he's he's his own editor. He doesn't have he's he's dialoguing it himself. It's almost like an opera. It's it's it, it. Jack is bombastic. Is by this point in his artwork, he doesn't have an he's uh, he found an inker Mike Royer that ink his pencils the way they are. He's he's in your face. The artwork is in your face. It's big. The Kirby crackle, the explosions, the the gestures, and the dialogue maybe kind of matches that. It, it's so operatic and big, and everybody talks in bold face and exclamations. Now, yeah, the point. Well, they're I'm telling giving you, what, you a skeptical look. Well, here. I think you're. I know, and I, I, I got you know Tom Stillbar, uh, who runs the book broker. He goes, I, you know, I, I like the look of the new gods. I like uh, the ideals, but I just can't get past the dialogue. I just Jack needs a writer. Jack needed an editor, and there's a lot of people that say that Jack needed an editor, a writer. But the whole thing about writing, uh, showing. Writing what, uh, repeating what you're writing uh, that shows what it's in the panel, that still was a, a stigma of that day. Some of the best writers, Englehart, uh, a lot of the '70s guys, Marvels, they were still under the sway of Stan Lee and still under the sway of not knowing that you don't have to explain everything in the comic book artwork. Well, let me stuff. ask you in those terms: Did you read the Star Wars Marvel comic books when they first came out? I read the I, I, I collected the adaptation issues, but then when it went the beyond, first, you were done by Roy Thomas and Howard Chaykin. Yes, Chaykin did he and he did through like issue eleven, I think, or something like and that. And Chaykin is totally embarrassed by that. Chaykin will be the first person to tell you. He goes, "You get to see all my mistakes and warts and how I grew as an artist right in front of your eyes." He wasn't a star at the time. Though. No, he wasn't. A, he was nowhere near the big star he is now. Okay, well, in terms of. In terms of us in the comic book industry, Chaykin is a is a legendary name now. But well, I got um, and then Archie Goodwin told, took over as writer after a certain point. Yeah. And then um, I I have Carmen Infantino being involved. Yeah, somewhere. he drew. He drew some issues. He was still drawing. Yeah, oh yeah, he he got fired from DC eventually. He they no. didn't like and and so he has to start going. Uh, it become a work for hire. And then again. and then later we got David Michelin who I was writing Spider Man Amazing Spider Man when I first started and Walt Simonson started drawing for it. Walt <laughs> did some more. Yeah. Did Walt was Walt Simonson okay with what he? did yeah oh yeah i mean he's that's that's what's walt getting that's probably before he got to thor and that of course his big his style grew from there well i mean he had early on hit a a cult hit called manhunter which was actually riffing off of a kirby joe simon jack kirby character but i I digress but uh he he, but do you uh, he revised the thor thor you know at, at one point you had John Byrne doing the Fantastic Four, the best run since Jack was on it. You had Frank Miller totally revising Daredevil and Brennan Electra. And then you had Walt Simonson doing Thor. Beta Ray Bill era. Yeah, Beta Ray Bill. And it's just, it was like, it was like, and it, was, it revitalized Thor uh, huge, huge, uh, uh, hugely. Well, uh, when I look at this list of people, like when I remember reading a few issues and not really thinking much of it, and yeah, maybe, have, maybe it fits into what you're talking about writing wise. Well, it, yeah, but also you got to admit, uh, there's a certain kind of comic book fan collector 
a diehard. I mean, really, a, you know, one that, that it's been my whole life. You know, I I can't my I don't have a, a memory of not having comic books around me. That's how I'm 62 years old now, uh-huh. and uh, we were always leery of adaptations. Uh, comic books based on movies or based on TV series. That okay. that was not pure comics. That was more like, and a lot of times, uh, the adaptations were just like they, it was just more. They had to beg. Well, they had to tell. They had to ask Marvel to do one. The Marvels almost didn't really want to bother it. Did you want to read that section you were talking about earlier when we had we were talking about uh, Edward Sumner the uh, thing because you were also you'd had this theory for a long time that Lucas. Um, was pay it was uh, invested in a comic book store. Yeah, I, I had heard rumors of that, and again, I, I, my biggest, my biggest uh, thing is that he's twenty six years old when the new gods are starting. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, and and he's in, he yeah, and I'm thinking a, a twenty six year old George Lucas is not going to be reading comic books anymore. Uh, Maybe. Or do you think? I don't I know. I think mean, he might. Yeah, but he's of a generation that didn't stay with comic books, as as, as my generation. Okay. Or your generation. No, no, that makes sense. I that mean, he, sense. Uh, and he, you know, he also had a lot. He, there, had, he was of a generation whose parents threw out their collections. And, and yeah. a lot of different things he had. That was clearly his, yeah. his, his, uh, where his, his So I'm wondering, were. but if he was a co-owner of a comic book store, was keeping track of stuff, and there's a picture of him with Frank Frazetta uh, together. And, wow. Okay. And, and I'm thinking, okay, but they know Frazetta. There's an, another way in, because Frazetta, go, he, before Frazetta was the Conan paperback artist, he was doing EC comics and he was doing comic books. Lucas does single out EC comics at one point as a comic he was reading in the fifties. Yeah, that was I, the one clear comic beyond the strips, beyond the, the uh, that's early fifties, and or to be in the neighborhood, the co- uh, used copies. But, but anyway, in this book by uh, Tells to Astonish by Ronan Rowe, I'll just read it here. It's not that long. The irony was that Marvel uh, told Kirby his ideas were old fashioned. This is back when Jack came back to Marvel in the seventies. And just when it, uh, so they said, "Oh, Jack, your your stuff is old fashioned." Just when a new movie, including identical elements, was about to forever change everything about the Hollywood film industry, the movie was Star Wars. With Marvel sales at an all new low, Roy Thomas went to dinner with Ed Summer, owner of the Super Snipe Comic Emporium on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Accompanying Summer was film director George Lucas, Summer's old film school ch- uh, classmate, a silent partner in the store and creator of American Graffiti, one of Roy's favorite movies. During the meal, Thomas didn't pay much attention to Lucas's discussion of a movie called uh, called The Star Wars, but he did feel Lucas had been reading a few Jack Kirby comics. I don't know if George Lucas ever admitted it, uh, Thomas would say later, but I got the impression in my conversation with him that there was uh, a little bit of influence there. And Roy Thomas was at the, uh, uh, the editor in chief, I think, at the time. And of course, Marvel. Uh, I think Jim Shooter has been quoted as saying that the the Marvel uh, Star Wars comic book helped save Marvel at the time. Okay. Well, because the reason I brought it up is uh, when I look at the uh, that status of artists that they had writers on there, it reminds me. I am a huge fan of after Lucasfilm sold and Disney took over, Marvel got back. Uh, Star Wars, which had been a dark horse forever, and I don't really remember reading any dark horse comics, but Marvel's Star Wars comics are super, super good. Uh, they started and they brought the new in, ones, the new ones, the and new they ones. brought out big names for it. The first, they have one run, one series that's one to seventy-five that takes place between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, and it opened with uh, Jason Aaron doing about forty issues, uh, which and then 
and they got this style so well. But the first artist was John Cassidy, who was just absolute fucking superstar. He only did like five issues, and they switched over to a bunch of different artists. But most notably, Stuart Eminem, who was almost as good as John Cassidy. And beyond the, how great, to, eventually they'd have people like uh, uh, Greg Pak and Charles Sewell take over. And some of those were lesser issues, but they're still pretty good. But one thing that if after the first few trades of it, it was consistently, there's three different series of Darth Vader. They're just starting on the third one right now. But the first two were, dr- were written by uh, Kieran Gillen and, um, and Charles Soule. And both of them are super, super good. The first series is this riff on, um, it's it's Vader after he lets the Star- Death Star get destroyed. And they, cr- they make it look like Breaking Bad, where he's having to fight to get the Emperor's uh, attentions again. And then these the next series and this current one do a lot of legwork to compare psychologically Vader as the kid from the prequels versus the Vader we know from the original trilogy. Well, you know, and this just goes to show you how the industry has changed and comic books have changed and evolved. Like I told you earlier, uh, we were always leery of adaptations and and, 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 and they were sloughed off to, uh, there was just a quick buck for Marvel. They did a buck or bonsai. They did, they did Dune. Sienkiewicz uh, illustrated Dune. I was intrigued by the artwork, but we I didn't really consider it, you know, uh, a real comic book or a real adaptation. It was just like, oh, there's some Sienkiewicz artwork. That's great. But it was just uh, and funny. Uh, so that's old school thinking. Now you have you know alien comic books. You have uh, Star Wars comic books. It's, you have it's hit or miss. This is why I'm so surprised. Buffy, this is good. Uh, uh, Buffy and, uh, and Buffy's ter- Buffy was good for a while. Buffy's terrible now. Well, but it's they they actually call them seasons like the uh, extended from TV. None of the new one they, they since Dark Horse lost. And the Angel license, and they, they Serenity and uh, all these are. And they all, oh, yeah, you're right. They're all hit and miss, but there's some really good good stuff being done and some extension being done. And as long as it has official people, uh, but yeah, but it's kind of funny. This really, really uh, low rank company called Moonstone, they got the rights to Buckaroo Bonsai. They had actually got W. D. Richter and Errol Mac Roush involved, but it, they they didn't have the artists. They didn't have the really uh, uh, oh, no. creative people they needed to really execute it well. Well, I was gonna say this this Star Wars comic. Um, the special editions changed uh, in a very stupid way where Vader found out about Skywalker and they changed the di- dialogue in a really undramatic way in the middle of Empire. He finds out that his son was the rebel that destroyed the Death Star. But in the comics, there is an amazing scene where like, it is, it is, oh, it's so good where Vader finds out and um, I, I don't want to spoil it. It's just such a great scene where he finds out and ha- how Vader reacts. Yeah, but yeah, and I, like I said, there's been really, really good stuff uh, in terms of uh, licensing character uh, from the uh, from the movies and other uh, sources. Well, that uh, you know, we were always a little bit, you know, uh, trepidatious about it. So we're pretty far along into how long we've been talking about this. We didn't even get to Hidden Fortress. Do you? And uh, well, I, I have you know, be honest, I have I, I haven't watched mine. I can't find my copy. Uh, but we the the uh, R two you know you well you watched it today so I was going to ask do you want me to talk about it since I well just just don't no, just uh, just mention the things the, that he takes from it there's a well the thing is I didn't make it when you first, we first introduced the idea of doing this episode you're like watch it in Fortress and I was like do we need to rehash it because I have basically it seems like it doesn't take much knowledge to know that C three PO and R two D two being your guideway into the storyline is um 
taken from the Kurosawa 1958 movie, The Hidden Fortress. But to be fair, Kurosawa's influence, my viewing the Kurosawa's in general and being underseen, like Kurosawa's all over Lucas. He's almost equally as in much of well, and even the, produces. A, uh, remember they, they Kurosawa's put, Dreams, yeah. and he did uh, uh, Kajimusha, and yeah. I, I don't. He put some money into Ron. Well, Coppola did. I, I forgot one. Coppola, Lucas did one of those, and, and I think Coppola did both of them. Ron. But they all got produced by uh, those guys. I was just looking up in the ILM uh, st- uh, uh, book the um, in a Kuros- uh, in Dream that uh, ILM did a shot, and Kurosawa just kept saying no too realistic and having them do his shot <laughs> over and over. But there's there okay, there's a bunch of different stuff. Uh, Hidden Fortress has princess. Them. They're going after a princess who they're um, trying to. Uh, it's a small band of people involving a general on a losing side or the small side trying to sneak through a thing. There's a sequence that remind me of the uh, trash compactor sequence you mentioned earlier, where the two uh, buffoons fall down the hill. The difference is that. The two buffoons bicker, but unlike R2-D2 and C-3PO, like, they're constantly trying to steal the gold at the center of the plot. Um, there's, yeah, there's a... All right, now, let me ask you this. The, the, they, do a fake, they do a fake princess bit, which isn't in A New Hope, but is in Phantom Menace, and is badly in Phantom Menace because it's like one of Kara Knightley's first roles. And I remember when I first saw Phantom Menace and liked my first view of Phantom Menace, even then I could tell this is a bad switch off of a fake princess. What about uh, the uh, the two buffoons in Hidden Fortress are and, and C two PO three PO R two D two and C three? Do you see uh, also uh, Lord Hardy influence in them? I mean, Maybe that's, a, that's such a basic trope. The comedy duo. There's there's a thing in Phantom Menace where um, there's the uh, direct CGI quote of uh, Buster Keaton with Jar Jar Binks. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. They're, they're going down the, the stones rolling down the hill. That Laurel Jar- and Hot, The thing, but no, the thing... Wait, but I mean, but, the, 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 the two lovable characters, they, they like each other, but they bicker. And that's such Lauren Hardy. It's so Lauren I Hardy. I guess. You probably, I, 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 I think, I, I think I, there's a... When comparing Jar Jar Binks to like R2-D2 and C-3PO, there's so much more functionality with C-3PO and R2-D2 fighting with each other. Um, really early on, the two buffoon characters get separated and come back together. And again, uh, I, I guess, I guess I, I, I'm getting back to our, just our basis of this whole uh, discourse we're having is that George, you know, has no problem uh, acknowledging these sources. I just have been nice. Is it, is, is he hiding that he, this or he, or he just, it was, a, uh, it was just an accident, uh, something in the air, or did he really take from Jack? And it'd just be cool to have, you know, Jack acknowledge. Uh, because uh, as we find out with the MCO movies and and comic book history, that you know Jack has been such a great influence, and I mean, and and has his. But everybody thinks uh, if anybody knows anything about comic books, Stanley, Stanley, Stanley. No, see that that's the that's when we first started having these conversations. I was um, I was very dismissive of Jack Kirby, but I was also doing the snide uh, Stanley. Actually, what was, my advantage was that Jack Kirby, I took the side maybe Jack Kirby wrote more than he's given credit for because of that. And Stanley being a writer who I, he has a certain talent set, but as a, uh, and he's a certain storytelling set that he's very talented at. But there's, being that the, the, some of the stuff is childish and readable to me as an adult, I was very hard on him. And, what is it, and I was very hard on him also because of the fact that he was so denying of Kirby's credit or Ditko's credit. Um, and over the years, right before he died, I feel like the tide of his reputation started to turn. There was a great New York Magazine article a few years ago that very head-on addressed this 
problem of him taking credit and uh, staying with the company and making money with the company while, you know, some, and it's not just the big, those big artists, it's the, all the other artists who, like there's a story that um, um, Marvel had work for hire contracts on the back of the checks the artists signed. So when they endorsed the check to get the money, they had to hand over their work for hire. Yeah, industry was just, it's a mess of industry. It's always been that and, bad. And, and, it's always, and, and a lot of guys have been open eye about John Byrne. I read an interview with John Byrne last night. He says, you know, Siegel, he goes, it wasn't unfair what happened to Siegel and Schuster. They they openly sold the rights. It was a paltry sum. But and 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 then he says, Yeah, Dicko and Jack knew Steve and Jack knew what they were doing. You know, but you know, does you know I, but John's a very you know Well that guy. argument also uh, a lot of people who have really shit on Alan Moore in the last few years, they put that to him with yeah. Watchmen where and Bru- Ed Brubaker comes to his defense on that, where, no, they like this is before trade paperbacks took over, and Dave Gibbons, Al Moore's contract for Watchmen said that when the comic goes out of print, they get the rights back, and there w- no one knew. It's just like uh, when the writer's strike in TV or movies happened a few years ago to fight for internet, they knew internet was on the horizon, and the profits from there were going to happen. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's such it's such a quagmire and uh, a messy change. thing. And I, I, uh, I going to, talking about Stanley. Uh, I'm not, I'm not on the anti, uh, anti Stanley bandwagon. Uh, it, it was like Lynn McCartney. You almost, you need it, it, the two. There was something about the two of those meeting coming together at that moment at that time that made it work. Uh, but, but here's the here's a really interesting thing. Think about what sticks out. What did Stanley create prior to meeting Jack and Steve in that '60s? Well, before that and after that, what what sticks out that Jack's created? Stan, you know, Stan's created, I mean. There's a, I get it. I agree with it. I see it. And it's indisputable, the popularity of what they created. There's a tiny part of me that wants to argue that the baby boom generation just hit their imagination years at the exact right time. Oh, well, no, yeah. I mean, that's another, yeah. I mean, it, like I said, it's a really, it's a, it's a really messy argument and, and discussion. And I think we could keep this going for another two couple hours if you really wanted to, because I just the the whole history of comic books, especially. Is, I is so I still have a bunch of stuff on my notes, well, but you, we need to no, we need to wind down. Really? So, oh God, we can't. Let's not go. Are you? Do you have any? No, I want to. I do want to. I do want to address. Uh, coming, wrapping up here, uh, there's an artist, Carla Speed McNeil. Carla, yeah, she's great. You know, Finder. This is. Uh, I got. They had a. They had an exhibit of Jack Kirby artwork. And they they put together a book when they put the essays, and she wrote this. Her essay. Uh, you know, uh, this is her. I'm quoting her. It goes, but the more I try to read the Fourth World, and I desperately want to, the harder going it is. It's like drinking from a fire hose. Perhaps I've come to. I've perhaps I've come to it too late. I'm, I might reflect about how yeah. you're, that you're approaching it. Yeah, approach. that's, that's it's t- like a fire hose just knocking you down, and it's almost like maybe I'm just too late to it, you know. Uh, uh, but you you you're benefiting from all these things that he came up with during those fourth world books. Yeah. And by the way, if you guys, uh, if for those out there want to investigate this more about Jack Kirby and his place, and and uh, Star Wars connections beyond even Kubrick connections and all kinds of stuff, I highly recommend this ongoing. Magazine sometimes it's a, sometimes the issues are even hardback called the Kirby Collector. We mentioned John Morrow before, but if you really, uh, I really want to uh, do a big plug for John. Uh, he uh, he does a great job. It started about he started this magazine about the time of uh, Jack passed away, and it's now it's an entire uh, publishing company with all kinds of great magazines, books in the comic book industry. 
but the Kirby Collector by John Morrow, check it out. I, it was also, I knew from the get-go when I first proposed this that I, I had the feeling you wanted to also find, get really deep into the, the origins of Star Wars and we were never going to get that. Um, no, like I said, it really comes down to those two things, for Source Force and the Father-Son Reveal. Those are the two biggies. I would just think... And, it, and the, thing, the thing that going, when you start looking into where Star Wars came into, the impressive thing really is that Lucas really did draw on a lot of... Oh, things. yeah, it's I, a kid to seek. It's like, you could sit there and just do a whole lexicon, for, I, which I'm sure people have. I would hope by this time uh, this year, if, you know, the pandemic happen, hadn't happened, I had hoped to have finally read uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, which <laughs> always seems like a big, big influence on the movie. I wanted to close Kirby-wise. This quote is used been used a lot lately it's used actually uh not just in tom king mr Gard's, um mr miracle but also their follow-up strange adventures it's in there too but jack kirby's the one of the pillars of the medium said comic books will break your heart oh yeah uh, i guess that's it for this episode ted thank you for being on it again long live the king long live the king jack king kirby and long live the length of this episode thanks everybody for listening <laughs>